the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we actually jump into today's episode with uh, Todd McGowan, we will be, uh, just wanted to point out that I do have a Patreon, and uh, if you're enjoying the content that I'm putting out, um, there, there is the ability to, uh, to donate to that, um, to that work. Uh, at the moment, I don't have the ability to put out premium episodes, but I do hope to someday, um, once we gain enough uh, Patreon members, that that will be kind of a valuable resource. So do consider that. You can find me at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, which of course stands for Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. But I'm very pleased today to have uh, Dr. Todd McGowan, a return guest, professor of English at the University of Vermont co-host of the Why Theory podcast. Uh, welcome back, Todd. Hi, Cooper. Good to be back. Absolutely. So uh, just so you know, a, a couple of things, Todd. One, our prior episode on Lacan, my most listened to ever. <laughs> so, oh, that's great to hear. <laughs> yeah, I got a, a lot of amazing, amazing feedback on that episode being a pretty good sort of intro to Lacan. So just wanted to share that with you. I, I also have to share. Excellent. I, so I have some friends here, actually in Austin, believe it or not, that are in the process. You may not know this, but they're in the process of doing a pretty deep dive into your um, Capitalism and Desire book. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think, I've, I think I did know that, right? Are they like Red Library? Red or? Library, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. right. Uh, some, some friends of mine um, that I've met just actually through Twitter, believe it or not, but. I just wanted to call that out. Um, so for those of, for listeners that haven't listened to that episode we did in the past, I was thinking the other day how funny it was. Really, really funny for me, I think in particular, that you were at Texas State the year before I was and had just, <laughs> had just left. And the reason I think that's so interesting is because, you know, I really didn't get exposed to psychoanalysis at all really until you know just a few years ago or you know i had freud was somewhat referenced right during during school but not a whole lot you know not like a deep dive understanding of psychoanalysis as a whole so it really wasn't until the last maybe two or three years that uh that became a big interest of mine and uh, it's funny the route that i took so the actual replacement or the person that replaced todd at at texas state is the one that actually introduced me to um to Baudrillard. Um, so I remember her, oh. she recommended two books to me because we were talking about um, Derrida, a little bit Foucault and, uh, and her class. And uh, she mentioned you should read Sim Simulacra and Simulation and then A Thousand Plateaus. So I think that's, that's kind of funny to come back full circle. What, what would my academic or my 
theory interest be if I had had the chance to take your class? You know, right, right. That's a great question. <laughs> I mean, maybe you'd be the opposite. Maybe you'd be a total Delizian, right? I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, my first question, Todd, uh, given the state of the world and being hemmed up indoors, so to speak, um, have you been giving any ground relative to desire lately? Uh... <laughs> I don't think so. No, I've just nope. been reading a lot of books. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The the one thing I guess the one way I have is I I I haven't written that much. I've just I've been kind of pouring through uh, Mirakami novels, and so for me, novels are kind of giving ground relative my desire because I, I have to sort of force myself to read them. So I, I I haven't been reading Hegel. I've been reading novels, and so that's your that that's that's I'm seeding my desire in that way. What, uh, what Murakami pieces are you, are you looking at? Uh, I, I reread uh, Wild Sheep Chase, which I think is amazing. And then I, I, I just read uh, Killing Commendatory, which is his most, not his most recent one. But yeah, I think maybe this is his most recent one. And I thought that was pretty good. So. And now, is this just for fun or is this some uh, a project you made? No, just for fun. It's hard for me not to turn it into a project, but I, I, you know, part of the thing is I don't know Japanese, so it it ensures that it won't be a project because it's, (laughs) you know, it's kind of hard to talk about a novelist, especially in translation. Very true. Very true. Uh, Yeah. So myself, I have been, I've mostly been reading theory. I mean, the the podcast keeps me pretty busy. Um, One of the big projects that I've been undertaking is I'm doing a series with a couple of friends of mine on Guattari's uh, The Machinic Unconscious. And so we're going through that chapter by chapter. And uh, then the course, there's, it was published right around the same time as A Thousand Plateaus. So there's a lot of content overlap. So we're right. covering kind of the corresponding chapters in A Thousand Plateaus. But that's, that's extremely challenging reading. Um, <laughs> in the midst of that, I read uh, Symbolic and Exchange in Death from Baudrillard. And that seemed very easy in comparison. <laughs> right, right, for sure. Which I, I found pretty funny after I remember reading a review of the book, they were saying how much difficulty they were having, but I was like, oh, wow, this seems incredibly easy in comparison. Right, right. Compared to Guattari, for sure. Absolutely. But to, to get into the meat of the discussion and the reason why I've asked you back is to delve into and maybe give us, I don't know, we can do maybe a 101 delve into Hegelian dialectics. Um, It's something that comes up frequently. Um, So I have a discord for the podcast and it's, we have a couple of huge Hegel fans and then we have a lot of uh, Deleuzians, fans of Deleuze. And I'm kind of situated. I, I think I kind of lean a little bit more to Deleuze on things, but I, you know, I'm, I'm curious about Hegel. It's, Sounds really interesting. I I don't know a lot about dialectics to be honest, so I'm I'm really excited to to learn a little bit. So I don't know where the easiest entry point would be. Would would that be just to bring up contradiction, or what do you, what do you think? Yeah, sure, sure. So so I think that that Hegel's philosophy is really a philosophy of contradiction, and that dialectics is about seeking out or rather uncovering the contradictions that inhabit our both our both language and our daily interactions so it's really about it's a it's really a philosophy of the dialectics for hegel is a philosophy of contradiction understanding 
grasping contradiction and then reconciling ourselves to it. So, so it's important, I think, that I think often dialectics, Hegelian dialectics gets described as overcoming contradiction, but I think that's absolutely incorrect, that it's, right. it's much more something like reconciling ourselves to the inevitability of contradiction and the impossibility of overcoming it. So I think that's a crucial, that's a crucial part of Hegel's philosophy that has been, I would say, missed by a lot of readers of Hegel. In terms of your interest, was was this a was Hegel first or was Lacan first um, in terms of kind of what you became interested in? Or yeah, so that's a good separate? question. Interestingly, initially they were entirely separate. So I, on the one hand, read a little psychoanalysis, and on the other hand, I read Hegel. So much Hegel was much more important to me, and it was only when I encountered Slavoj Žižek that they they I could see the way in which they converged. I couldn't even, to be honest, like I didn't see the convergence before it was pointed out by Slavoj. So it wasn't like, oh, it was just, it was, I, I had this intuition or whatever. No, I didn't have that at all. I, to me, I didn't see any psychoanalytic dimension to Hegel's thought until I encountered sublime object of ideology. And then that, and then it all, it's one of those things where once it becomes apparent, you can't but see it all the time. So now it's perfectly, it's, it's, I think it's, it's almost impossible to miss. Whereas before right. I, I missed it. So yeah. it's a, it's a testament, I think, to, to the importance of, uh, of Slavoj's intervention. I do admit to sort of, I think one of the things that has most, or I found most alluring about Lacan is that sort of contradiction in his work. And I've, uh, I don't know. I, I seem to, I've enjoyed it more when, when Lacan does it than Hegel. I don't think that I'm being fair to Hegel when I see people kind of the Hegelians coming after me. It's I'm a little bit more defensive and skeptical. And so hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll work through that today in this discussion. I think. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> um, before we really d delve into the, the discussion here. Do you have any recommendations on if there's, if someone's curious, I guess an intro to dialectics or Hegel other than the phenomenology, or if there's maybe a chapter of the phenomenology or that you would recommend taking a look at? Yeah. I mean, I think the best to me, the best intro text for Hegel is the encyclopedic logic. It's often called the lesser logic. It's much clearer than the phenomenology. I think you cannot get through the phenomenology without it. Of, abundance of help. Like I've, I, I've, I've never had a student read it on their own. They've all done independent studies with me or I've taught it. I think I've taught it in three different classes and that's the only book. That was the book of the class. Right. So, gotcha. uh, but, but I think encyclopedic logic, I think you can get through it and it's not that, it's not that bad. And, and, and it, and especially the first hundred pages, it kind of lays out nicely what Hegel's philosophy is. I would also say, the preface, or I don't know if it's called preface or introduction to the philosophy of history, that's pretty good as well. So it's, it's the so philosophy of history comes in three volumes and it's the, it comes at obviously stupid thing to say, but it comes at the beginning and it's before. So the, the first volume of the philosophy of the history of philosophy is not so interesting because it's about uh, philosophers up to Plato. Uh, but the, preface to that's again about 100 pages and it's really really it's one of the nicest cleanest explanations of dialectics that i think hegel has so that's a if you just wanted to read that introduction and then i think the 
the encyclopedic logic is also really good. I was delving into the preface uh, for the phenomenology, and I, I did came a, I come across a passage that I wanted to read, and I thought this kind of got towards a little bit of, I don't know, this felt very, um, like a good encapsulation of Hegel's dialectics, but also felt uh, it spoke to the moment that we're existing in. So I will, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read this if you'll indulge me. Okay. Besides, it is not difficult okay. to see that ours is a birth time and a period of transition to a new era. Spirit has broken with the world. It was hitherto inhabited and imagined and is of a mind to submerge it into the, in the past and in the labor of its own transformation. Spirit is indeed never at rest, but always engaged in moving forward. And I think that that last sentence here, spirit is never at rest, but always engaged in moving forward, I think goes to how Hegel sees dialectics functioning or uses dialectics, I, I might say. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's a beautiful passage, really. Yeah. I think that I think that the preface to the phenomenology is the most readable part of it. And it's a it's also a pretty good introduction to his thought, I think. Um, I just think that the problem is after you get past the preface, it gets uh, appreciably harder. But uh, but yeah, I think like that idea that I mean, the notion his notion of spirit is that it's a it's a it's a very distinct idea. So it comes it's the German word is Geist. And so what's interesting is that's been translated, the first translation of Hegel into English translated as phenomenology of mind. So spirit and mind. So, and I think it's, while that's incorrect, it's also helpful to, as a way to think about what spirit might mean for him, Correct. but it means it's, it's something like our collective mind, right? Our collective way of thinking. And so uh, for him, that, 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 that spirit is really it's necessarily enwrapped up in dialectics like it can't spirit is always as that passage you said suggests it's always in movement and it's also it's always struggling also it's never uh, reaches a point of rest where it can just re be content with itself so that's an important aspect of hegel's dialectics which again i think is missed in this notion of synthesis that often gets attributed right. to what do you consider dialectics to be? I guess it's often considered a, a method. Is Do you feel that's a pretty accurate way to look at it? Uh, I, it is certainly a method, but I think it's more than that because I think it's also uh, existential, right? Like dialectics is, I think it's tied to the very nature of our existence. And it's because, and Hegel deduces this from the nature of language and symbolic interactions that it must be the case if that's possible if that is if language is possible and language is always contradictory then being itself that he makes an ontological claim on that basis that being itself must hence be contradictory and so the dialectics is the like being itself ontology and it's not just this method that one uses to make sense of things, it's actually part of the nature of things. That I the nat things are dialectical for Hegel. So does that is that sort of a, a capital T or a lowercase T form of truth, or is that is that too bold of a claim? Just, no, just I think that's right. Here. No, that's I think that's right. I think it's I mean it wouldn't uh, I think it's 
is dialectics truth? I mean, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good question. I, uh, I don't think that's too big of a claim. I think it's the, I would say it this way, rather, I would say dialectics is the pathway to truth. The like it is the, that it is the way in which truths are, are uncovered because Hegel's point is that truth always has to emerge first in the form of the fiction. So this is a very Lacanian, Lacan takes us up the same idea. And he even says, I think this is an actual Lacanian aphorism, that truth has the structure of a fiction. Hegel says something pretty similar. And so it's dialectics which gets us from some initial fiction to truth as a, something that we can discover. On that note of fiction. By understanding the contradictions that are... Sorry. Oh, <laughs> um, I was going to say on, on that note of fiction, I was just going to... So you pointed out that that sort of crude dialectical, I think, understanding that most people have is the antithesis, thesis, synthesis, right? Which I think it was Fichte or Fichte that actually first crafted that sort of formulation. But exactly, that's, that's not exactly what, that's not exactly how dialectics works. That's a sort of a mis, misnomer, misunderstanding of the process, right? Absolutely. And so if you read Fichte's Wissenschaft Lehre, which is translated very badly as science of knowledge, but if you read that book, he uses that formulation, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, all the time. Like it's just, it's maybe on every other page. He doesn't say it's dialectical, though. That's interesting. So, uh, okay. so Hegel's idea of dialectics, so Hegel never uses those terms, never. So that's important. But Hegel's idea of dialectics really comes not from Plato, where you might think it comes from, but more from Kant. And so the last part of the critique of pure reason is called the transcendental dialectic. And what Kant does is use dialect, for him, dialectic is only negative. It only means we, we, we follow reason to these points at which it contradicts itself. So we know that we've overstepped the bounds of what we're permitted to think. I see. And so for Hegel, that dialectical result that Kant sees as purely negative, for Hegel, it's also positive. That, that when we run into contradictions, that doesn't tell us that we don't know anything. That's a way of actually knowing something, Hegel thinks. That, that understanding contradiction as an end point of thought is a, itself an insight. So you, could, you might say that the only difference between Kant and Hegel is just that flipping of the way he values that, that end point. Like, is it just a negative as it is for Kant or is it, is there some positive insight there as there is for Hegel? So this is why Kant really thinks that reason, he, he gives reason a very limited role in his philosophy. It's only, it's only really about marking the, the limits of our possibility for thinking. Whereas for Hegel, reason is about, Rec is, is, is the vehicle through which we can recognize contradiction. And so it's funny, the contradictions that, that Kant thinks are the, the end point, Hegel thinks that's really what we, that's what reason gives us, and we should celebrate that. Interesting. That's funny, though. I did get, I mean, I guess it does make sense, um, being them both being German idealists. <laughs> I got a very much like uh, reading the preface or, of the phenomenology very much reminding me of Kant. Whom I have, I have uh, often uh, bemoaned as very boring. <laughs> um, probably unfairly. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. 
But yeah, all, I mean, he. Go ahead. I was going to say also. Um, I don't know if you've heard this argument, but I've heard the argument too, and it maybe speaks to the the portion of the critique of pure reason that you brought up about Kant being sort of and uh, sort of a proto post-structuralist in some ways, uh, kind of setting the table for that. And I want to say that it's tied to the exact thing that you brought up, the chapter that you brought up, but I may be misremembering. No, I think that's probably right. I mean, if, if what you, I mean, if, 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 if figures like Derrida, they're much more Kantian than they are Hegelian because they're concerned with the limit on what it's possible to say or, or do, right? So they're, they're figures of the limit and that's, and that's really Kant's philosophy. It's a philosophy of the limit. Whereas for Hegel, he has this famous saying, it's a critique of Kant where he says, you only know a limit once you've already gone beyond it. So for Hegel, there's no, like we, there's no real such thing as limits on the possibility of thought. It's through going beyond those limits that we really discover what we, what we think. So, <laughs> uh, I love know. that. I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's that, pretty great. That, that's so great. I, I mean, I think that whatever that contradiction is or that, that kind of shift at looking at, at things is so fascinating to me. I love that. I don't know. That excites me. That gets my neurons all, <laughs> all jazzed up. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's really one of those amazing points in the history of human thought that we're, this thing that was for up until this point a, a, a dead end all of a sudden becomes, well, wait a minute, we can look at that in a whole other way and the valence of it completely changes. So to, to give this, um, this idea of, I guess, dialectical tension of, of contradiction, some material uh, or a way to think of it materially, uh, one that I thought of that I've really, I don't know, I, I get a kick out of this too, is that idea of, so, you know, personal finance, and especially, you know, this is what millennials have been criticized for is, you know, not buying homes because they're spending all their money at, at Starbucks and on avocado toast. And I think it's very funny that this contradiction within capital of, at the, at the personal level, on the individual level, there's an austerity that one must, uh, you know, go go by and live by right but right. systematically as part of the whole if everyone was living that austere lifestyle then the system would sort of would collapse crash. like if everybody was actually doing what they quote unquote should be doing the system is unsustainable and i think right. that goes to the type of contradiction that hegel that dial, hegelian dialectics are trying to get at and understand Am, am I absolutely. on the right track? No, absolutely. That's a perfect one. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, capitalism is is the contradiction. I mean, that's the perfect contradiction of capitalism. The other form of that is that the employer wants to pay the employee the smallest wage, the that lowest you, wage possible, right. but they need employees to make enough money that they can buy the crap that they're making. So they can't have they can't, they, they, they're this double bind where they want every other employer to pay their employees a lot <laughs> so that they can right. buy their stuff. Right. So it's a, so that's a, per, that's another perfect contradiction identified by Marx. Right. So that's, I mean, I think that there's this Hegelian approach that then Marx takes up and brings to economy, which I think yeah. is pretty important. Like right. Hegel doesn't really, for all of his greatness, like I think he's a great thinker, but he doesn't. He has no real understanding of modern capitalist economy. 
I mean, he has a couple of little things where he says something kind of like what you were saying, where he says, the more, the more society becomes rich, the more it will produce an impoverished class. Ooh, so yeah. that's pretty good. And that's pretty much about capitalist society, but, but, that, but he really doesn't understand the factory system. Or yeah. anything. So, so he just, and it, part of it is when he would live. So he dies in 1831. But part of it is Germany was very, you know, behind the times. And it's really only Marx going to England that allows him to write capital. And he can see the modern factory system working. Yeah, that kind of makes sense because, uh, let's see, Hegel was in the, the Prussia, Prussia was its own state at that point whenever he was, correct, he was working. Correct, correct. Okay. Right. That makes complete sense. Yeah. So I've been a bit skeptical um, of Hegel and, and dialectics as someone I think, you know, I'm very much, I, I do enjoy my post-structuralist thinkers quite a bit and yeah. see yeah. dialectics having the potential to be just another meta-narrative. What, what would you say to that, to that argument? Does that have any merit or? Well, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, I, I think it, is it a meta narrative? I would just say it's a it, it's not a narrative at all because it's the un the the, the dis it's, it's I, I think you almost see it almost opposite. It's the dismantling of every narrative. It's the way like dialectics is about the way in which every narrative that is teleological ends up undermining itself. So that and, and this is why it can be really hard to read Hegel because he doesn't take his own position and then advance it in the book. Instead, he takes what he thinks is, well, he begins every book with what's the most, what he calls the immediate or commonsensical position, and then works through that to what he calls the absolute. So the movement is all driven by the forms, the positions themselves, and the way in which they undermine themselves. So it's not a narrative that you impose, it's what you find within a position and the way in which it's, it's, underlying implicit arguments end up coming into contradiction with themselves and then thereby leading to another different position. So it's, I, I would just, I think that its structure is opposed to narrative or is an anti-narrative. So I don't think it can function. I mean, I think, you know, ironically for, for Stalin and, and I think for a certain brand of Marxism, dialectic does become this master narrative that gets imposed on the world. But I think that's a betrayal of the way in which Hegel at least understands dialectics. Okay. Okay. That's good. Good. Okay. So that makes sense. Cause I th really, that, I guess the arguments that I've, or the tension that I've come across is more so with Marxists even, and not even going for like dialectical materialism, but even using Hegelian dialectics as sort of this way that the, the communist state or, you know, the party would usher in communism through just this continued dialectical process, right. which I always felt like there was an implied teleology to. And I don't know, it sounds like that's not, Hegel doesn't really believe in, in a teleological no, process. No, I mean, right? he's right because, so, so Spinoza, he's, a, he, he's at least enough of a follower of Spinoza to know that teleology is like the, the, in the appendix to part one of the ethics, you probably know this, that Spinoza famously 
undermines all teleology and says it's just a projection of our own, the way in which we think onto other phenomena. Okay. And Hegel, Hegel definitely bought that. And he definitely, so he's not a teleological thinker, I don't think at all, except in, in just in this one way, I think he is, that he thinks that if you follow contradiction to its end point, you're always going to get to this, you're never going to resolve it. So right. this inability to resolve contradiction, if you see that as an end, as a, as a teleological, then he always okay. thinks we're going to end up with that. So, gotcha. so in that sense, but of course, that means the kind of openness. So, so I, I would be loath to call that teleology, but I think you could, I could see how someone would see it that way. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. And so I think maybe my, it's probably a misunderstanding on my part, probably looking at this very, that very, I think, crude form of dialect, like thesis, antithesis, synthesis, because it's sort of like, to me, I was sort of formulating this as, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing dialectics <laughs> for lack of a better phrase. And whatever I'm, the, the contradicting that I'm looking at or that relationship is in itself subjective. So that's kind of made, made me a bit skeptical of, okay, this is sort of like, okay, you can look back at history and you can see, okay, there was th this part of the co contradiction, the other side of that, here's how it played out. It's sort of like a post hoc, it felt kind of like a post hoc rationalization, right. Right. so to speak. Right. And I don't know, maybe that's a misunderstanding of Hegel, but I'm also curious as part of that too, I think a big thing is how does time function for Hegel? That's what, something that I've been immensely curious about because I think it is tied to that, that notion of looking at relationships, how like only at the end of something can you see those, the, the right. contradictions clearly. I guess not always because we're within capital and we can recognize that, you know, avocado toast versus, you know, uh, personal austerity. austerity. Right, right, right. But I think you are onto something important that, that this idea of retroactivity is, is crucial for Hegel. So the term Freud uses the term, and I, I think this term is applicable back onto Hegel who doesn't necessarily use it. The German word is Nachtreglichkeit, which means like it, something causes itself, something in the future causes something in the past. So it's like an after effect. Right. So this retroactivity, Hegel does think that that is the way that time functions so that so that we in other words we come to a certain point and then after when we come to that point we posit our own causes that then get us to that point so it's a it's an it's an interesting way of i think thinking about causality in not in terms of chronological temporality right, okay. right? so 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 when something ha something happens that is disruptive is a rupture. We don't, there, there's not, there's no, there's no prelude to it. Like it just comes and we find the cause only after the fact. And we look back and say, Oh, it must've been this that caused that. But it's really Hegel's idea is really, no, there are these ruptures that occur that, that actually are almost like breaks in the, in the fabric of time. Right. So that, so that, something new emerges that doesn't have any preconditions for it. It just it emerges contingently. And then afterwards we look back and we attribute a causality to that. So that's, okay. so that's the way in which that idea, what you're talking about is that is present in Hegel's thought for sure. 
that, that, that and, and he sees that as, as the part of this, the way that we make sense of history and also the way in which we, uh, you know, we, we, we mi minimize the radicality of the breaks that we, that, that take place in history. I'm beginning to see the appeal of Hegel to Lacan. It's, it was a little bit um, cloudy, but I think that your, your last little bit there really kind of clarified that Hegel is a lot more concerned with consciousness than I had ever imagined, I think. Right, right. Which right. I think is, was interesting. And I guess that's, to me, I feel like that's probably what drew Lacan into Hegel to begin with. I think so, although I think that what's interesting about Lacan is he, uh, so early on, he, he studied under Alexander Kojev, who was the great uh, French, Hegelian he wasn't Hegelian. French, a Hegelian, great Hegelian in France, he's Russian. Uh, and he studied under him for three or four years in the 30s when Kojev gave these great lectures that everybody, all these important French intellectuals came to. Uh, and so his early thought, Lacan's, is very explicitly Hegelian, although the problem is it's tempered through this Kojevian understanding of Hegel, which takes the master-slave dialectic as the absolute matrix for all of Hegel's thought and really uh, also foregrounds this idea of the end of history. In fact, some people have said that the end of history is just Kojev's concept that he invents, and it has nothing to do with Hegel at all. I don't necessarily think that, but, but so the point is that, that Lacan has a very Kojevian Hegel at work I see. through his through his early thought, and it's only when he imagines that he's breaking from Hegel that he starts to really become Hegelian. So it's <laughs> a kind of nice irony, that, right? That, that so this happens about I don't know seminar ten, seminar eleven. So so in the mid nineteen sixties. What do you think of this idea? So you know, very being very immersed in, in language, and I think uh, semiotics. How much of dialectics do you think is just a, well, I guess you kind of already got to this because it's part of consciousness, which is tied to language. So the idea of like the subject predicate distinction being like, like, is that a, is that a material basis for dialectics or is that an expression of the, like, is that an expression of dialectics materially? is that we have we structure our sentences that way because of the contradictions within language or is it or is it the other way around i don't know that's well it's a great question but i think it's both like it's it's we we okay. discover dialectics through language i it's i've always found it hard to believe that modern linguist that hegel did not have knowledge of modern linguistics because if you read the sense certainty section of the phenomenology it really reads like someone who's read Saussure and Jakobson. So it's really like the, so he really is getting dialectics from the structure of language. But so, so in terms of our apprehension of it, it's we get it from language, but then he says, it must be the case that the world had to be in such a way that we could produce language that's right. dialectical. So, okay. so his idea is that, and I think this is, you know, I think a lot of Hegelians find this questionable. Like they think that all Hegel's talk, that we can only think about Hegel in terms of the social symbolic structure, where we cannot make any kind of ontological claims and the ones that he made are dubious. But I think if you, if you I think this idea, I find it pretty convincing that 
there must be a certain ontological structure in the in being to make contradiction in language possible so so being in other words be to put it in terms of uh, other psychoanalytic thinkers have put it being can't be one like being can't be like parmenides thinks it can't all be one or else how could we ever have even started to speak at all and break up the oneness like if 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 the contradictions of being are just our a fact of our subjectivity how could that be how could they ever emerge unless there's some contradiction within being itself and that i think is the most radical dimension of hegel's thought that we can we can trace the logic back from our symbolic structure the structure of language back to the precondition in being that makes it possible how do what does that look like as as is that in op, that sounds like it's a bit in opposition to to spinoza is Am I am I right or no? I think you're right, right? Because because so Spinoza thinks there's only one substance, right? right. So there's only all that all being is one, and so Hegel's point is it's exactly the opposite. He has this great line in the preface to Phenomenology where he says substance must be considered as subject. So what he means by that is that everything that's that that we consider as substantial, that is as undivided, has to be thought of as subject, i.e., as divided. So, so there is, for Hegel, there's no undivided substance, which separates him from every thinker prior to him, really, because every thinker prior to Hegel believed there was at least something, like for Leibniz, the undivided substance was the monad. For Spinoza, it was simply everything was the undivided substance. For Hegel, there's no undivided substance. There's no, there's nothing that escapes self-division, contradiction, and 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 subjectivity. So even though obviously an apple is not a subject, an apple is still for Hegel divided in the sense that it can be eaten, right? Like he thinks that the very fact we know an apple isn't a substance because we can take a bite out of it. Like we can, the every the the ability of the whole of everything, to, and it's amazing. I think that he didn't know modern physics, because I think <laughs> modern physics confirms exactly what he says, which is why I mentioned Slavoj Žižek earlier, he loves to talk about physics in terms of Hegel, because it does seem that that the, the, the truths of quantum physics nicely line up with things that Hegel, Hegel himself thinks about the way in which things relate to each other and the, and the, the final self-division of everything all the way down to the atomic level. I forgot to bring up this point uh, when we were discussing sort of um, of Hegel in time, but um, it's Nick Land actually has a similar concept it, called templexity that oper is operating like uh -huh. on a different level where, like you're saying, things things in the future can have or the future can cause the past because there is no like this this notion of linear time isn't really how, how the universe operates. It's just our subjectivity that is kind of creating that illusion. But I know I found that just to be an interesting sort yeah, of- Yeah, yeah. I think that's a nice Hegelian idea. Over, sure. Overlap between those two concepts yeah. that, that immediately struck me. Um, something else, this is kind of miscellaneous, but I was, so I have a, uh, I had a sociology degree as an undergrad and uh, some of the aspects of, Hegel, I felt 
very much applied to uh, Emil Durkheim to a degree, and, and like in particular, this notion of uh, of social deviance. Right. And so Durkheim's notion was that okay, deviance is never and much like it sounds like much like contradiction. It's not something that we can ever escape because we will simply redefine what deviance is throughout over time. And it right. ha- absolutely. And it having sort of that f- a functional aspect to it, rather than being a dysfunction, which is I think the common sense understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that that for Hegel, the law itself or the social regulation necessarily produces deviance, right? Like, so it's, so that, 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 what seems like it is a rejection of the social order actually is part of its functioning for Hegel. Creating creating a more bond. He even goes further because he also. Go ahead. Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. And also what's interesting is he, he also thinks that, that the punishment that a crime that a criminal experiences is actually part of the crime itself, and this is something he takes this from Kant too. This is also Kant's idea that that the that we shouldn't think of punishment as external to the crime, something imposed upon the criminal or on the crime. Instead, it's 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 he says it's posited by the criminal act itself, so that the the, the criminal acts in a such a way that the punishment is actually included in the criminal act. So I think that's an interesting, and it's tied to this notion of the necessity of deviance that, that I think it, that, you know, that, that he sees the way in which it's what, what seems like it doesn't fit in and is actually contradictory that that contradiction is necessary actually. Right. To yeah. This, to the functioning of the social order. Yeah. And I, I've always thought that very interesting as I'm some kind of anarchist, I, th- I think. And so realizing that, Okay, so there's not going to be so there is no tele- teleology to this, and there will continue to be contradiction. There will continue to be, you know, I guess strife after any some like revolution in, in quotes, right? Right, but this is this is why you can't be Hegelian. I think he was very <laughs> he's very anti-anarchy. He was right. very like he's very strictly. You know, he wasn't necessarily all about obedience to the law, but he thought the law was absolutely constitutive for subjectivity. So he didn't think that there was any kind of subjectivity outside the law. That's very interesting. I've, cause one thing, a, f- a feeling, I don't know, it's kind of a gut feeling that I get having been raised in a kind of um, evangelical environment as, as a kid is Hegel oftentimes reminds me very much of that sort of Christian Christianity uh, to, for some reason. I, I, don't know exactly what it is. Um, maybe I've taken the the idea of idealism too far and, and judged him too harshly in that term. But I don't know. What do you do? You think there's any? Do you see a relationship there at all, or am I just? <laughs> no, no. I think. I mean, there's for sure a relationship between Hegel and Christianity. I think. I mean, I think he's in a certain way the great. Christian philosopher, because his whole point, okay. his whole point is that Christianity apprehends something that philosophy also apprehends. That is that the absolute it brings the absolute. So the absolute as God is posited as far in, in the distance. Right? We can never. It's transcendent. We can't have any. We in fact, if you're Jewish, you can't even write God's name out. Right? 
So his idea is that Christianity brings the absolute down to earth. And he, he loves that idea that, that actually we're, and, and, and it does that because it recognizes that it creates the idea of a loving God, which means he thinks a God that's divided and contradictory because you can only be loving insofar as you're lacking. So Christianity creates a lacking God that then comes down to earth in the form of Christ. And then that, that, that eliminates the God of the beyond. So I think, I think there's a way in which he's very, very, very Christian, except now I'm going to add the next part is that I think it's absolutely opposed to the way that contemporary evangelical Christians conceive in Christianity because for, they want to sustain the God of the beyond as an authority. Yeah. Like, we don't know. All we can do is obey. Right. We have to look to God, you know, God only know. Like Hegel, for Hegel, you're never allowed to say God only knows, right? Because God doesn't know any better than we do. So, <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. so uh, or you have to say God has no idea. Then you're more on the proper Hegelian ground. So, <laughs> oh, That's delightful. That's really good. Yeah. Um, to that point, I think it's interesting to, for, for me, I think maybe that's the, my instinct was based on that. I'm, you know, maybe like mixing the sort of modern notion of like the evangelical view versus what Hegel was kind of positing. Um, But I have found recently and primarily exposure to Spinoza as a way to understand Deleuze a bit better, but as sort of an agnostic atheist type, whatever, you know, label you want to throw on it. Um, I do find Spinoza's idea very, it is a lot, a very much more comforting notion of, of the universe, I think, than um, I think other more hum, other humanist currents. Um, and I found that I've really enjoyed that kind of notion of everything, the, and everything being one substance and then the expressions and the modes of expression and so forth. Um, right. We talked a little bit about Hegel and Spinoza do you have a, a any further point of view as far as those two thinkers are concerned? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting because Heinrich Heine said, uh, he, he, he read his copy of the Phenomenology, he's like, well, Spinoza already said all this. So I think there's a way in which, I don't think that's right, but I think there's a way in which they're very, very linked together. And it's just, I think you could, you could almost read Hegel just in this way. He adds to Spinoza just the concept of subject then that's, that's it. But that, there's a lot of implications along with that, right? Like there, that means that all of a sudden everything is, if, if subjectivity means self-division, then that oneness of substance is no longer a oneness. It's, a, it's more that we're all connected by our self-division, not by this overarching oneness. So that's the difference, I think, between Hegel and Spinoza. They both think about the whole. Hegel definitely thinks we have to have recourse to the whole. But for Hegel, the thing that constitutes the whole is the self-division of everyone. So the fact that everyone is connected through their inability to connect with themselves. So I reach out to you, you reach out to me because we can't, we, we, we miss ourselves. So that's, that's the Hegelian idea. And I think for Spinoza, we're, we're intrinsically connected because we're all part of the one. So I think that's a big there's a big, I think there are political implications of that difference. You know, Pierre Machéret, a, a lot of, he wrote a book called uh, Hegel, or Spinoza ou Hegel, like Spinoza or Hegel. And I think there's a lot 
that's really a dividing ground. You know, like the like the the, the choice between Deleuze and Hegel, which I think is a genuine alternative. Okay, is I think in some ways the the distinction between Spinoza and Hegel as well. So I think those are the two basic positions. Like, do you either accept the oneness of the whole, or do you think that the whole is constantly riven by contradiction? And I think that's the. It seems to me like that's the basic opposition between two possibilities for thought. And we see like the the main proponents of the Spinoza's view today are something like Hart and Negri, right? Like their whole empire, their whole multitude project is about a a Deleuzean, Spinozian vision of things. And then the other side would be Zizek, Badu, this kind of idea of the, the notion of the split being in some way essential. Interesting. I do want to get to Deleuze a bit further, but first uh, I wanted to ask, have you, do you have an opinion on Stirner at all and his relationship uh, to dialectics and Hegel? Yeah, I think Stirner's an interesting figure. I mean, he's a, so he's a, he's a, he's a classified as a young Hegelian, right? And, or a, le- and a left Hegelian in the same way that Marx was. Uh, he's trying to, I think his, and this is my criticism of all the young Hegelians, that I think they don't see the way in which there already is this space for the individual within Hegel's own dialectic. And they try to, their critique, most of them, their critique is, uh, they both want to politicize, they they think they can take, make political, Hegel more of a, or Hegelian thought or dialectics more leftist. And they think that they can, they can make it more, uh, applicable to give the individual some space within the dialectical system. And I, I just, I, my only point would be, I think that's already apparent in Hegel. And then I think the attempt to really to forge that space for individuality ends up, I think you miss the way that contradiction is universal and that individual gets accepted from contradiction in the case of Sterner. I think. Interesting. So Sterner is someone I very influential on me because I have this kind of, I don't know, um, he's even as well, which kind of makes sense. Um, I see him as very much a sort of proto-post-structuralist as well. Well, right. I mean, Derrida, I think, really thinks a lot of him. He yeah. mentions him in Spectres of Marx right. and, and sees him as a, you know, he, he makes fun of Marx's making fun of Sterner uh, in the last, that Herculean-sized chapter of German ideology, right? Which is a, like, I think Derrida says he, he, he keeps hammering nails in Sterner's coffin and none are ever enough, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, um, but Sterner has actually, I guess, Honestly, it's probably through memes on the online become he's like one of the biggest meme philosophers um, and sort of the if you're looking on, yeah. right on, on sort of like the left end of, uh, of Twitter or even Facebook or really just online in general. So it's kind of amusing. But I do think he does. He's even, definitely more memed than read, right? Oh, yeah, um, definitely. But uh, yeah. he does, he is very influential in, a, in certain strains of anarchism, post-left and like post-anarchism. And I find, I thought, thought of it was very interesting to see his connection or of his ideas to even almost sort of a parallel project to Derrida in some ways in sort of, right. in his, right. you know, just sort of relentless attack of, of liberal idealism. 
and sort right. of, and, and the and the spooks or the spirits or or what have you. Mm-hmm. But again, Cerner, and I don't think he ever mentions dialectics whatsoever in in the uh, what is it the, uh, the ego in his own or the unique in its property. I right. think is the better right. the better translation they say. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I think that's that even ties into that contradiction between Spinoza and and Hegel too, because Stirner says that there's only there's only individual or there's everything is unique or every being is unique right. or right. or something like along those lines. I mean that's right. that's oversimplifying it, I think, but no, I think that's right. I think that's his position. And I, but I, I see again. This is where a point where I think, you know, Hegel's notion of singularity, I think, articulates kind of the same thing. So yeah. it's interesting because I think this is true a lot of times of Marx. Like the, they launch a critique that misses, that doesn't see the way in which Hegel's already kind of said what they're trying to say that he should say. You know, so. Would that be the origin of this common refrain that um, there, you can't Hegel is inescapable or I forget, we can never escape Hegel? Yeah, who says that? I think Derrida says that, uh, and and I think that that's. I mean, I don't know that that's. I don't think that's true because Deleuze certainly escapes him, right? Like Deleuze is is openly anti-Hegelian, and I think he's. It's. I think it's right. As I said before, I think it's just. You know, there are these certain things that I think come down to just a philosophical choice and for whatever reason you make it. And I think the distinction between Deleuze and Hegel is one of those. You know, I I see, I have friends of mine who try to bring Deleuze, like Slavoj has a book, it's called something, what is it called? Um, Organs Without Bodies, right? Like it's an attempt to bring bring Deleuze into the Hegelian camp, but it's just, it just doesn't, would it, I mean, that's a nice book on Hegel. It, but it's not a book on Deleuze. So I don't, I think that there, you know, sometimes there are just opposition. There are just things that are, you have, you can take one side or the other, but you can't really marry them. And I, my sense is that that's true about Deleuze and Hegel. Interesting. Uh, you anticipated my next question, which would be if, if Deleuze really escaped Hegel and you, I think very firmly agree that there is an escape. Although I, I do want to bring up this passage that I stumbled upon in in my work for <laughs> my Guattari series. Um, okay. that I was interested. This is from A Thousand Plateaus. And I'm, I'm questioning whether Deleuze really does escape <laughs> Hegel here. Okay. okay. Because he says, or Guattari and he say, in a sense, everything we attribute to an age was already present in the preceding age. Forces, for example, it has always been a question of forces designated either as forces of chaos or forces of the earth, right? And that seems to me on its face to be extremely Hegelian. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But I mean, but don't you think, I guess here's why why I said what I said. I would say his notion of difference is is fundamentally different (laughs) from... (laughs) From the notion of contradiction, and I don't think that, that like for for Deleuze, there's and there differences just differences are, and they and they don't they don't really relate to each other. So things in cat and, and he's he's on this idea he's indebted to both interestingly to both Leibniz and Spinoza who seem like they're at at counter 
currents, right? Like, because one is about all the absolute isolation of everything, Leibniz, and then Spinoza is about the oneness. But I think the Lewis brings them together and in his notion of difference, and that and difference is absolutely distinct from other things, but it doesn't, it doesn't relate to those other things. Like the difference of an entity is not constituted through its relation to another entity, which for Hegel, it has to be. And that's why he thinks there are no different, like for Hegel, we can reduce all differences to contradictions. And for Deleuze, we can reduce all contradictions to difference. So I think it's just, it's the, and I don't see how you can, uh, how you can bring those two together, but I do see how they're, how they both function. Right, and I, I, I'm not even sure. You know how most of the time in which you, you describe a, a argument, you're already taking one side in it, right? Like, right. like, and and but I don't think that a Deleuzean would be that upset with how I just described that. Like, I think they would accept that for Deleuze, it's it. We can look at every apparent contradiction and see really there's a functioning of difference there, and I think, hey, I know Hegel would say. When we see differences, there's really contradictions at work. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I kind of had intuited that this was I, that maybe these viewpoints are simply saying these they're saying the same thing, but from a different vantage point or something like that. But no, I, I think that's right. No, Cooper, I think you're. Right. I think that's the right way to say it. That they and and that vantage point is everything, right? Like, <laughs> that it's that it means everything because. Because it, it it determines how you're going to look at what you see and how you're going to, are you going to look at it and say that what seems like it's these, something relational is actually just, a, is a collision. So things that exist as differences, they collide for Deleuze. Uh, and they can, and so for, you know, Deleuze, like, let's take death, for example. So Deleuze thinks death is the result of what he calls a bad encounter, right? Like it's just, you have your own way of being and then you encounter some bad thing, the thing, the thing that doesn't agree with you, like COVID, and you're dead. <laughs> now for Hegel, he, he thinks everything dies of its own account, right? Like that is radically different. So Hegel thinks even if I get shot walking down the street, I in some way have my own death already in me because I'm a dying being. Right. So that, okay. that so that that dying is already part of me, even if the time at which it happens happens to be contingent, right? Like it's all okay. it's most of the time going to be contingent, but that dying still has to be part of me, or I right. can't die. Yeah, <laughs> right. oh, I love that. That's yeah. so good. I mean, I enjoyed. I'm absolutely loving this, <laughs> but I, I enjoy both thinkers. I'm just someone I think that's just interested in this, like these questions. This is the most fascinating thing you can kind of get to here and i think it's an interesting actually like the dialectic yeah, between the dialectic between hegel and deleuze itself is an interesting one i think that'd be interesting to really dive into but for the yeah someone should write a book on the someone should write a book on the dialectic of deleuze and hegel right. that would be interesting yeah what is the yeah what's the what's the synthesis or what's the how is how are their failures united into something new that's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't. That's an interesting question. I don't know. Yeah. Um, as far I've sort of run out of my questions in terms of Hegel and dialectics. Do you? Is there anything that I have missed, or do you think is important that we haven't already sort of tilled through the ground of? 
Well, I would just say this one thing that, that, that Hegel's philosophy always, I mentioned it in passing, it always ends up with the absolute, either absolute knowing, absolute idea, absolute uh, political form. And I think for him, what absolute means, and I think this is very important, is, to, is it means how you are, to means to be absolutely reconciled with contradiction. So absolute is not, I, I, I mean, I've said this in a variety of ways, but I just want to clarify in terms of the absolute. It's not the overcoming of contradiction. It's rather the recognition that contradiction itself is absolute. So you could say, you might retitle it as absolute contradiction. Like that's the end point of Hegel's philosophy in every one of his books, I think. Yeah. Even just thinking about that, what you just said and Deleuze's multiplicity of difference. I don't know that actually <laughs> they seem kind of aligned. And when you think of it that way, right. I mean, maybe, I think, I'm, maybe I, just on the surface level, perhaps, but no, maybe it's what you said earlier. It's just, or maybe it's the same phenomenon looked at from a different right. perspective. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. What else, uh, perhaps in terms of, of Lacan, You've often brought up the the interesting thing that, you know, uh, Lacan obviously being influenced by Hegel, but what's sort of denying it and that common refrain you have of when Lacan thinks he's being, <laughs> he's not being Hegelian is when he's being the most and the vice versa of that, which I think is interesting. Maybe if, if, if you don't mind going into, into that or something interesting with Lacan and Hegel that you've enjoyed as well. Sure, sure. I think that the, that, that idea, so I think it's when, so Lacan thinks he's breaking from Hegel when he thinks he gives up the notion of, of recognition, that, that there can be, that the end of psychoanalysis is something like what he calls full speech or mutual, I think his idea is there's some kind of mutual recognition that's beyond struggle. And he gives that up and he, it becomes more, you identify with the objet ah, so you identify with the detritus, the piece of you that's been, that's, that's Discarded. exiled. And it's interesting because I think that that, that is the Hegelian idea that you, that you only, there's this, this great notion in Hegel that you find yourself, that you can only find yourself when you discover yourself in absolute otherness. So I think that, is precisely what Lacan is getting at with his idea of identifying yourself with the objet ah as the end point of analysis. It's, all, it's another way of saying that would be you find yourself in absolute otherness. So in this point where you're most estranged from yourself, that's where you really find yourself. But that's, that's Hegel's idea. And then I think that's also, that fits in so nicely, I think, with the the way Lacan theorizes the end of analysis starting in really in seminar 11. I mean, it gets their preludes to it in seminar eight even, but, but it's this, see to me, that's the great, those are the great, that's the great moment of Lacan's thought that maybe from seminar 10 to about seminar 15, 16, like I think that middle period is really the most, the most fecund. And I think it's also the most Hegelian precisely because of that notion of the way analysis ends and the way that you get identified with the thing, with the piece of detritus. Interesting. Um, one thing I was going to ask you that I just recalled was, uh, have you ever read the the Dune series, the Frank Herbert sci-fi novels? I've read this the first one. Just the first one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So there's something interesting that I was thinking about yesterday was, so later on in the books, and I don't know, maybe I shouldn't spoil you, but. No, it's okay. I probably won't read them yet. Very interesting Hegelian and even I think Marxist um, way to read the, the series is, so eventually you have Paul, you know, Paul Maudib, after the first book, yeah. um, this, you know, tremendous empire comes and it's the jihad and it's, you know, it's, it's a slaughter across the, the galaxy or what have you. In the, in the third book, um, they have, Paul has a, a set of twins, one of them, Leto II, and he eventually merges with the sandworms of Dune somehow. Oh, wow. And so I was thinking about the issues like, okay, so he is almost, he is becoming the one he's merging with the other and, in some degree, or even possibly with, with death itself to create this universal, like this sort of, because he come, he becomes sort of this transcendent being, right. That incorporates uh-huh. humanity and the worm or, like I was thinking maybe the worms, you know, you would think death, right? So merging right. life and death into one sort of being. And then he enforces this golden path, which is almost like you might see as like a, a Marxist Leninist or Maoist kind of um, takeover of like an authoritarian forcing of humanity to bend to his will. And through that authoritarianism, the, human race benefits ultimately like there has to be this essentially they want to do away with this idea of prescience and and what have you and have humanity that are have a humanity that where there are no prescient beings that can interfere and and cause all these problems which i think is is a super fascinating way to read the series but interesting yeah i mean i always thought that dune I thought it was an incredibly Hegelian moment where they, they say the worms are the spice, you know, this yes, notion right. that this notion that the things that would destroy us are also the source of the thing that we value the most. I, right. I think that's an incredibly Hegelian and Lacanian moment, right? Like this thing that's, that's going to, that, that we want to escape is actually the thing that we're, we have to be drawn to at the same time. So, but I mean, I'm a little skeptical of this idea that, that we can get rid of certain kind of things that are, that are damaging us. You know, right. like I think, I mean, Hegel's idea, and I think psych, the idea of psychoanalysis also is we have to instead like embrace the thing that damages us. And it's the attempt to, to create a world that doesn't have that to make America great again or whatever yeah. form that takes, that that's actually the source of the greater problems, right? Like the, right. that it's the inability to, to, I mean, to put it in Hegel's words, to tarry with the negative, it's our inability to do that that then produces the worst, I think. Right. So I think that's, I really think that's an important idea. And I think when, when, when Marxism has forgotten that, it's gone incredibly awry, right? And, and the notion that we can produce a better society by killing a whole lot of people, that seems to me a terrible, right. you know, Marx, I think, would have been appalled by that. And I think that I think that that's a, but it's a product of this idea of we can improve people. And, and, I, and I think that the, both the psychoanalytic idea and the Hegelian idea is that you can't, all you can do is, you know, t- as I said, like tarry with the, the negative parts of our existence and, and make do with them. Right. And so I think that's a, 
I mean, in some way that sounds cynical, but I think it's almost the opposite of cynicism because I think it's it's a it's a it's a way to to say that there's a political struggle at work and 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 it's a it, it's a how we how engaging in that struggle is what makes our life livable. It's interesting to look at that in the in that context of June too, because you have you have Paul who is trained as, you know, he's trained in all these things as a, as a fighter, as, you know, in the Bene Gesserit tradition at, as uh, even like the Mentat, like the human computer. So he has all this training to be this, you know, this sort of singular, <laughs> this singularity, right. this sort of messianic figure. But then as, as that happens, he, you know, he's, he's horrified by what, what becomes at that. And you see that really, this gets elucidated in the second book a lot more so, which is a very much uh, kind of a, <laughs> it kind of definitely flips. There's a very much a contradiction between that first book and the second book where you start to see the negative fallout of just kind of what you were describing, like sort of this, this horror of trying to enforce a different humanity. And so the right. son has to take up the work of the father. And then he, he actually, I think tries to introduce a more Hegelian approach to it by trying to get rid of this sort of mechanistic controlled aspect. Eventually, although he is utilizing sort of this authoritarian approach because he, so as part of this, he becomes inhuman. He resembles a worm with a human face and lives something like 4,000 years and even (laughs) winds up engineering his own assassination. He sets in motion his own assassination as a way to bring about this new future or new potential for humanity, which is pretty interesting. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that that just hit on me yesterday as I was uh, talking with my roommate and and thinking about Hegel and dialectics and trying trying to see those relationships or maybe, you know, having the toolkit now um, or a more improved toolkit lately, I think, to approach things dialectically. It was really interesting too for me to go back and read Baudrillard after having a little bit more exposure to both Hegel and Marx and being able to see some of the dialectical approaches that, that Baudrillard himself took. I thought that was Especially very early on. I think. Yeah. Right? Right. So yeah, symbolic exchange and death is where he kind of starts to break from Marx a bit, but he's still very much, whether he's acknowledging it not, um, oftentimes he is being very dialectical. Right, right. But uh, that's all I had for today, Todd, um, unless you had anything else to share. No, Cooper, it was really great talking to you. I really had a great time. Absolutely. I definitely appreciate your time. I do want to give you the opportunity to discuss what you what you and Ryan are doing at uh, at Y Theory, and um, you d- you have a you have a book out recently, right? Well, or my book, out? I think it's not quite out yet. Yeah, the book is called Universality and Identity Politics. Yeah, it's going to be out in a month or so. In a month or so. Okay, so we'll keep our eyes out for that. But uh, definitely, anybody who is interested in, he- in Hegel and psychoanalysis should definitely check out Todd and Ryan's podcast, Y Theory. Uh, they do a great job, I think, of of introducing these things and, you know, also discuss Freud and and other thinkers. Um, So I will absolutely put a link to the podcast in the show notes, but uh, once again, this is Todd McGowan. Thanks so much for, for joining me on Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. 
For my listeners, I do want to mention that you can find us on Twitter at UnconsciousHH, on Instagram as well at UnconsciousHH, and then once again on, uh, on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. But this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour signing off for the week. Cheers. Hey, Cooper. Thanks a lot. That was fun. I appreciate it. Uh, That was awesome. Including the ultimate form of security, which is podcast.